This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The sexual revolution could easily be the deadliest war in history. Before we begin this episode of the Return to Order Moment, we want to take a moment just to say that there is an easy and effective way to access the podcast. In some cases, phones do not have the possibility of accepting a subscription to a podcast. If you open the website www.returntoorder.org, you will see the name of the organization, Return to Order, and then underneath it, a dark yellow bar with several words on it. The second from the right is the term podcast. If you simply touch that button, you will be taken to a page featuring the Return to Order podcast. The most recent episode will be the episode on the top as you scroll down the page. You could also access older episodes of the Return to Order moment by scrolling down through the page and listening to those podcasts that interest you. So we hope that this will make Return to Order a better tool for you to continue to go out and fight the enemies that we all face. Each new episode of the Return to Order moment comes out at the same time, at midnight, as Tuesday becomes Thursday. So anytime after Wednesday morning, you can go to our website and pick up the latest podcast. Thank you very much. If we had to find a date to say when the sexual revolution began, August 18, 1960 would be a good place to start. That day, the first contraceptive pill went on sale in the United States. That marked the beginning of mass society's acceptance of the separation between the marital act and procreation. Certainly, there are those who led immoral lives before 1960, but they were both obvious and few. Communities shunned the promiscuous. Gradually at first, but with increasing speed as the 60s rolled out, virtue and responsibility in the sexual realm were replaced by self-gratification. Do your own thing, and other more vulgar slogans marked the rise of widespread immorality. All around us lie the victims of the sexual revolution. Among them are 60 million Americans that never lived because of abortion. We can see it in the fact that very few families are unaffected by divorce. We can see it in the number of unloved and unmarried young women who deliberately became pregnant in order to have a baby who they can call their own. We see it in the gang culture that has become part of the life in most cities, large or small. Today, Mr. John Horvat looks at the effects of the sexual revolution on young men. He does this in his essay, 12 Million Fatherless Boys Need Urgent Rescue from Calamity. An army of 12 million boys is roaming the nation without their biological fathers. Not all the boys are up to mischief or breaking the law. Some have no fathers due to death or misfortune. However, most are the products of irregular unions, broken families, and abandonment. Thus, the overwhelming majority are in conditions that are asking for trouble. Fatherless boys represent a huge risk category. Numbering 12 million, they make up nearly a third of all boys. 
These boys are more likely than those with biological fathers to join the ranks of those who commit crimes, drop out of school, and commit suicide. They are also much more likely to enter these paths than girls. Most young men who commit mass shootings come from this troubled demographic. Such startling facts should give rise to obvious conclusions. The best way to help these unfortunate boys and society is to encourage families to stay together. Let them be with their fathers. In this way, the problem is cut at its root. However, liberal society insists on treating the symptoms, not the root of the problem. Government agencies will extend mental health and counseling services to the unbalanced boys. Special education programs try to make up for the shortcomings of the 12 million fatherless. Governments will provide financial aid to broken families. These measures cannot solve the problem. The government can do little to provide the boys with what they really need, their fathers. The real problem is a society that finds absent fathers and irregular unions acceptable. Since the 60s, people no longer see the family with both a father and a mother as the norm and promote free love instead. Adolescents are taught that they can be promiscuous without consequences. However, there are consequences, as seen in this army of 12 million fatherless boys roaming the nation. This tragedy happens because of a wrong philosophy of life that dominates the culture. Too many people believe the myth that the greatest good is the freedom of the autonomous individual. This fallacy holds that as long as individuals do not impede the self-interest of others, they are free to do whatever they want. They are free to be whatever they want to be. Indeed, they are free to self-identify as whatever they choose to be. This concept of human freedom accepts no boundaries or limits. It denies reality and ends up impeding the freedom of others who refuse to validate their fantasies. The sexual revolution of the 60s took this false theory to the extreme limits. It taught that every individual could engage in any consensual relationship as long as it had no direct consequences. Thus, the introduction of the pill and contraception deprived these free relationships of the consequence of offspring. When contraception failed, abortion ensured a person's freedom could continue unobstructed. When free love gave rise to the actual birth, it imposed no direct obligation on the father. Without the vows of matrimony, the father is free to leave without legal penalty, and the mother, or the government, is left with the task of raising the son who joins the army of 12 million fatherless boys. The fiction of individual autonomy teaches that acts should have no consequences beyond gratification. People can supposedly control their pleasure by indulging in free love, drugs, and aberrant lifestyles without harming society. However, such reasoning is wrong. Every social act has an impact on society and especially the family. 
actions have consequences beyond self, and people need to act accordingly. If something harms society, the person has no right to do it. Justice is the virtue where all are given what is due to them. Individuals sin against justice when by negligence they harm themselves, burden their families, deprive society of their talents, and incur needless government expense. This logic applies in the case of the fatherless boys. The actions of the parents have consequences. The man deprives the son of a father. The mother, heroic though she might later be, fails to engage in a stable relationship that will provide the boy with protection. Society is deprived of a healthy unit needed to build society. The government is often called to provide assistance. The most unfortunate victim of the two parents' negligence is the boy. When aborted, an individual with a unique mission in history is eliminated, and that plan of God for him is forever lost. When born, the boy is deprived of the father who should be his blueprint, protector, teacher, and moral compass. He will never know the security and comfort of a father and mother united in purpose and love. He will not grow up in a family of natural siblings who will help him preserve his innocence. The child suffers more because broken families do not integrate well into a community. Those who do not follow God's law or are hardened in sin rarely open themselves up to the saving actions of the church. While all these consequences also apply to girls, the fatherless boy is especially hard hit. Contrary to the egalitarian lies that claim that boys and girls are equal, the experience of fatherlessness proves the opposite. The boy reacts differently to the father's absence than the girl who can find consonance with her mother. Thus, fatherless boys go astray at far higher rates than fatherless girls. The boy does not know how to channel his rough energies into protection. He does not understand the world without role models of courage and strength. The deprived boy becomes cynical, resentful, and aggressive. The Institute for Family Studies describes the tragic result of the fatherless boys well. Quote, the decline of marriage and the rise of fatherlessness in America remain at the center of some of the biggest problems facing the nation. Crime and violence, school failure, depths of despair, and children in poverty. Unquote. Society has the right to defend itself against this scourge. Governments can hold young people accountable for their irresponsible acts. The culture can be a powerful weapon to censure impurity and make child abandonment unacceptable. The traditional family can encourage members to honor the family's reputation. The church teaches the joys and possibility of practicing purity. All these influences now find their counterparts in the present-day society, promoting an opposing agenda. Government, education, 
Hollywood, progressive clergy, and many other factors conspire against every boy who dares to be born. What began as a small number of unfortunate boys has now ballooned into an army of 12 million. Most people refuse to deal with these issues. They insist that the government look at symptoms, not causes, programs, not institutions. Dealing with causes calls upon people to change their lives and the culture that they enjoy. The time is coming when the immensity of the crisis will overwhelm the nation. Meanwhile, the most precious thing a mother can give her young son is a father. If she stays with the father for life, she gives her son a fighting chance for survival. The most precious thing a fatherless son can receive from anyone is an introduction to a mother, the Blessed Mother. Devotion will lead her to her divine son, giving him every advantage in fighting the culture and help him become the father he never had. In 2020, a groundbreaking book, The New Politics of Sex, The Sexual Revolution, Civil Liberties, and the Growth of Governmental Power, was published. Longtime TFP member James Bascom reviewed it. However, before we read Mr. Bascom's review, we have a brief statement from the American TFP. Taking a principled, not a personal, stand. As practicing Catholics, we are filled with compassion and pray for those who struggle against violent temptation to sin, be it toward homosexual sin or otherwise. We are conscious of the enormous difference between these individuals who struggle with their weakness and strive to overcome them, and others who transform their sin into a reason for pride and try to impose their lifestyle on society as a whole, in flagrant opposition to traditional Christian morality and natural law. However, we pray for them too. According to the expression attributed to St. Augustine, we hate the sin but love the sinner. And to love the sinner, as the same doctor of the church explains, is to wish for him the best we can possibly desire for ourselves, namely, that he may love God with a perfect affection. See St. Augustine of the Morals of the Catholic Church, number 49. The young men described in Mr. Horvat's essay suffer from the fact that modern society appears to have no constructive place for them. Much of the blame for this situation can be laid at the door of radical feminism. Many were lulled into supporting this revolutionary movement because its most public goal was equal pay for equal work. To Americans, this idea went well with the ideas of fundamental fairness upon which many of us pride ourselves. However, there was a far more dangerous side to radical feminism. This new ideology spawned many new attitudes that went hand-in-hand with the emerging immorality of the 60s and 70s. The social rot that took root then still plagues America today. Professor Stephen Baskerville provided an insightful critique of this movement in his book, The New Politics of Sex, The Sexual Revolution, Civil Liberties, and the Growth of Governmental Power. 
Mr. James Bascom reviewed it in his essay, The Feminist War on Fatherhood, Book Review of the New Politics of Sex. In his book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, the late Justice Robert Bork wrote that, quote, Radical feminism is the most destructive and fanatical movement to come down to us from the 60s. This is a revolutionary, not reformist movement. Totalitarian in spirit, it is deeply antagonistic to traditional Western culture and proposes the complete restructuring of society, morality, and human nature. Unquote. How right he was. Yet not even Bork, who passed away in 2012, could foresee the full extent of feminine radicalness. The same sexual revolutionaries who destroyed his candidacy to the Supreme Court in the name of so-called abortion rights in 1987 are today fighting to impose so-called gender ideology, erasing the very concept of male and female. On June 15, 2020, the Supreme Court took this process to its logical conclusion. In Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, the court redefined the word sex in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include, quote, sexual orientation and gender identity, unquote. The state will now be the enforcer of gender ideology in America. Any employer who objects to homosexuality or transgenderism will likely face prosecution, fines, and even jail. It is tragically symbolic that the court issued this decision the week before Father's Day. Because if there is a single target for all the hatred of feminists, abortionists, and homosexuals, indeed, of all sexual revolutionaries, it is the natural male headship of the family. They have waged a psychological, political, and social war like none other in history to destroy manhood and annihilate the traditional family. With a frightening Mao-like radicalism, these revolutionaries stop at nothing to gain power and impose their dystopian view on society. Stephen Baskerville professor of government at Patrick Henry College, has described and denounced this feminist war on fatherhood in his excellent book, The New Politics of Sex, The Sexual Revolution, Civil Liberties, and the Growth of Governmental Power. Feminism has little to do with individual issues such as equal pay or affirmative action. Indeed, Feminists want to overthrow the entire social order, from politics to economics to law, and use the government's full weight to enforce this transformation. Feminism, he explains, was born from socialism. The first-class opposition in history, Friedrich Engels wrote, coincides with the development of the antagonism between man and woman in monogamous marriage and with that of the female sex by the male, Unquote. Simone de Beauvoir, perhaps the most well-known feminist of the 20th century, concurred, quote, A world where men and women would be equal is easy to visualize, for that is precisely what the Soviet Revolution promised, unquote. 
then as now, communists and socialists saw sex as a central component in their war to impose absolute equality and overthrow all hierarchy, authority, and private property. Socialists created the war of the sexes as a continuation of their class struggle theory. According to this narrative, men are the natural oppressors of women in the family, and therefore must be punished and permanently kept in check by the state. Since men built the structures of Western civilization, women's liberation requires that they too be torn down. To implement this revolution, feminists created entire academic disciplines such as women's studies and gender studies to develop and disseminate feminist ideology. In addition, new gender crimes began to appear such as rape culture, sexual assault, sexual harassment, domestic violence, stalking, child abuse, bullying, sexual slavery, hate crimes, and hate speech. These new crimes are political in nature, without any clear definition, and overwhelmingly enforced against men to the detriments of families and children. That men are often falsely accused of these politicized sexual crimes is part of the strategy of striking fear in the innocent. Presumption of innocence has turned into a presumption of guilt. Indeed, a mere accusation of one of these new political crimes is enough for men to be punished. As Baskerville puts it, criminality is defined collectively as membership in a class, even a class into which one is designated by government policy beyond one's control, unquote. Scholars Michael Weiss and Kathy Young write, such liberal principles as the neutrality of the law, equality, and individual autonomy must be discarded because of their patriarchal roots. The new feminism attempts to replace those notions with a new breed of philosophy and jurisprudence. Law is seen as an instrument to change the distribution of power. Unquote. This has led to an explosion of false accusations against men. To cite just one example, a Purdue University inquiry found that at least 50% of all rape accusations on campus were false. A Defense Department Inspector General report from 2005 found that 73% of women and 72% of men at the military service academies believe that false accusations of sexual assault are a problem. Such false accusations and prosecution of the innocent is a valuable tool of the feminist movement. Quote, if there's 10 people who have been accused and under a reasonable likelihood standard, maybe one or two did it, said former Congressman Jared Polis, it seems better to get rid of all 10 people, unquote. One major goal of the feminist movement is to break up families and take fathers away from their children. To do this, they created a moral panic about domestic abuse and deadbeat fathers, even though the statistics show that mothers are just as likely or more likely to physically abuse children as fathers. 
American law gives mothers legal and financial incentives to divorce their husbands on the flimsiest of reasons or for no reason. One New Jersey judge told his peers, Your job is not to become concerned about the constitutional rights of the man that you're violating as you grant a restraining order. Throw him out on the street, give him the clothes on his back, and tell him, see ya around. We don't have to worry about the rights. Unquote. Juries rarely adjudicate such crimes in standard courts of law. The left has created a parallel justice system made up of family courts, university campus tribunals, social workers, lawyers, child protection services, public school officials, and other bureaucrats who often issue politically motivated yet legally binding decisions without any possibility of appeal. To deal with the explosion of broken families, feminists have created a giant government bureaucracy, which in turn encourages more family breakdown to increase its power and control over society. It is a vicious cycle with no end in sight. Baskerville shows how feminists have mastered the art of psychological warfare and emotional manipulation to obtain its goals and silence opponents. Feminists created a moral panic about abused women and children to push their social revolution. Opponents of feminism, or anyone who simply defends the principle of due process, are accused of rape denial or misogyny. The most high-profile example of these feminist attacks in action was the Brett Kavanaugh Senate confirmation hearings, itself an extension of the Me Too movement. Without any evidence, and based on one person's flimsy testimony, Americans were expected to, quote, believe all women, unquote. Kavanaugh, we were told, was guilty simply because a woman accused him. Such tactics have the flavor of the Maoist cultural revolution. Feminism and homosexuality are inseparable in this new sexual politics. Quote, Feminism is the theory. Lesbianism is the practice, said well-known feminist Ty Grace Atkinson. For many of today's feminists, lesbianism is far more than sexual orientation. It is, as students in higher education learn, an ideological, political, and philosophical means of liberation for all women from heterosexual tyranny, unquote. Baskerville rightly blames feminism and the sexual revolution, with its new political sex crimes and postmodern deconstructed language, on the sins of rampant promiscuity and sexual license embraced by both men and women since the 60s. As a society, we are suffering the consequences of our sexual sins. Perhaps, he writes, though they, men, receive an unjust punishment from human authorities, they are being justly punished by God, unquote. By overthrowing all restraints on sexual activity, 
we have contributed to the same revolution that wants to deny absolute objective truth. At war with human nature, this revolution is now destroying the very concept of male and female through gender theory. Baskerville has the courage to say what many weak conservatives think but are unwilling to admit out loud. That free and easy divorce blazed the path for the feminist revolution. Many years before the 60s, it was divorce that began the breakdown of the family. Quote, For the first time, he writes, a legally unimpeachable citizen with no fault, sitting in his own home and minding his own business, without any finding of legal culpability for anything, could be summoned to a court and find himself summarily evicted from his home, permanently separated from his children, confiscated of all his property and income, and incarcerated without trial. Unquote. Contrary to popular belief, women file the vast majority of divorces. The most frequent reasons given are not adultery or physical abuse, but subjective and undefined ones such as growing apart or not feeling loved or appreciated. Often, judges grant divorces for no reason at all, as is seen in no-fault divorce. Shamefully, a majority of conservative Catholics and evangelical Protestants have long embraced divorce as a regrettable but acceptable choice for a married couple. This surrender granted a valuable victory to the sexual revolution and undermined all subsequent battles in the culture wars, including those over contraception, abortion, homosexuality, and now transgenderism. Overall, The New Politics of Sex is a well-written, thoroughly researched, eye-opening summary of the feminist war on men and masculinity. The gender wars that we are fighting in 2020 are the endgame of the long march of sexual revolutionaries through our culture. Stephen Baskerville's book sheds much-needed light on this revolution's goals and methods. It is not too late to fight back. Indeed, we must fight back if we are to save the natural family and our beloved country from ruin. This concludes, The sexual revolution could easily be the deadliest war in history. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. 
copyright 2022, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.